there, it's Gary Parish. It's Saturday, March 17, 2018. Welcome back to the Ion College Basketball Podcast. I got Matt Norlander here with me. And more specifically, it is now 1.40 a.m. Eastern on Saturday, March 17th. I just got off set CBS Sports Network, and tonight we all witness history. UMBC 74, Virginia 54. So history has been made for the first time ever. A number 16 seed has beaten a number one seed in the NCAA tournament. The record for one seed before tonight, it was 135. And oh, now it's 135 and one. Ryan Odom and his reti- retrievers are going to be remembered forever. And Tony Bennett and his Cavaliers also remembered forever, but for vastly different reasons. Obviously, we're going to spend a lot of time on this, but uh, I want to give you first crack at it, Norlander. What do you make of, of this historic night in college basketball? This is, I will always remember doing this podcast with you, GP. I'll remember watching this game in the hotel lobby of the Pittsburgh Marriott City Center with our good friends Jeff Goodman and Dana O'Neill. And before we get into the game and the results, I feel like I'm going to forget if I don't mention this. This was a fairly just okay Friday until this happened in terms of NCAA tournament stuff. We had a few dramatic games and some somewhat close ones, but this was not on pace to really be anything all that noteworthy, which to me makes this result even better because March 16th, 2018 is absolutely within the confines of college basketball and American sports. It's a day that will go down in infamy. We have finally broken down the last wall in terms of single game results in the tournament. I still have hope and belief that maybe one day down the road, decades, I hope we're both alive to see it. We'll see something amazing like a 14 make a Final Four, and wouldn't that be incredible? Or two 15s break through to the Sweet 16. Those things would be awesome. But the only thing we had not seen from a single game result in this tournament was obviously what we got from the University of Maryland Baltimore County Retrievers against the number one overall seed Virginia Cavaliers in Charlotte on Friday night. It is a Bolt from the blue, the way that they won, has to be part of the story here forever. This was not a team giving us a dramatic pull and tug for two hours with a really well-prepared and capable number one seed. Instead, we had an ugly 21-21 first half. And then UMBC puts up the most points in a half on Virginia that it had given up in more than four years. It shoots better from the field for the entire game than any team this season had done against Virginia. It does this three seasons removed from being a four-win program, which is also incredible. Its first win in program history is the greatest win in NCAA tournament history as far as I'm concerned. When you look at the magnitude of what we've seen here, this is freaking tremendous. And I was always on the record as saying, I root for the ones against the 16s because you only get it once. And I was, and I will admit that for the first part of that second half, I was totally fine if Virginia was able to come back, do what one seeds had done 135 times before, and found a way to finish on top. But as we got closer and closer, and the realization, by the way, that we were going to not only talk about this, but I was going to have to write about it sunk in, I got really excited about that. And I got jealous of our friends who were there in Charlotte and got to go through the heartburn and exhilaration of getting to document it in person. This was awesome. I'm glad we got it now. I'm glad we got it at this point in our lives. I'm glad that we got to experience this. For me, personally, I will never forget where I was when I watched this game. I think you probably will feel the same, and I think a lot of people listening to this podcast will feel the same. There are so many different uh, aspects we can touch on with this 
team, UMBC, with Virginia, with Tony Bennett, with the bracket and all that. But I want to hear what you were feeling and what your reactions are to something that's really just the reason why I love this sport and I love this tournament and the reason why this tournament, for me, is the greatest event in all sports. Well, to your earlier point about being jealous of our friends who were in the building to see it, um, Dan Walken from USA Today is a guest on my radio show uh, every Friday. And I had him on today, and I knew that he was at a site. I just didn't know which one. For whatever reason, I just didn't know. And uh, so I said, uh, you know, I welcome Dan Walken in. Dan Walken covers college athletics for USA Today, and he joins me now. I said, Dan, it's Gary. Uh, first off, where are you? And he said, I'm in Charlotte. I'm at the worst place you could possibly be for the opening rounds. Like, I'm going to get nothing here. And I'm looking around, and Thursday was unbelievable all over the country. And I somehow ended up at the worst place. And we had a conversation about, you know, how you never know, you know, where the stories are going to develop. You know, I actually was lucky enough to witness Florida Gulf Coast in Philadelphia several years back. And it was just, you know, I, I think I've told the story before. I only went to Philadelphia because they had a night flight direct Memphis to Philly. And it was a Friday, Sunday pod and a Friday, Sunday pod would only uh, force me to miss one day of radio. And I ended up getting to witness Florida Gulf Coast. And then he talked about some of the things he's been lucky enough to witness, Middle Tennessee over Michigan State. But he thought he was at the worst place to be. And it turns out he was at the best place to be, which is, again, just a reminder. You never know where the story is going to come in this uh, unbelievable event. Um, I was on television as this was unfolding. We had a show uh, set to start at 11 p.m. Eastern. And... You know, the game's tied at half, and I think most people, you just think, for okay, well, then Virginia was whatever, but, you know, then they'll go. You know, you you just always assume the one seed's going to get it together. And yet, UMBC comes out and takes the lead. And then we have to jump on television, like, as it's, you know, it's eight points, 11 points. It's right around that range. And you're still starting, you know, you're still thinking that maybe Virginia will make a run. But the first time it became, I don't know, real to me, like, oh, wow. This is going to happen. I was looking at live bets on a website. And with about 14, 15 minutes to go, the live line had UMBC as the favorite to win the game. It's like minus one and a half. Then it was minus two and a half. Then it goes to minus five and a half. And it's like, wow. Like they are actually not, it, we're not, we've passed the point of maybe this could happen. We are at the point where this is going to, this is supposed to happen. And you all, Virginia never made a run at them. I mean, it didn't get closer. It got worse. You know, they're up 15. They're up 17. They win by 20. And we were live on the air, you know, really just sort of hovering over this scoreboard and, and, and discussing the game. Uh, for television rights purposes, you're not allowed to show highlights until the game goes final. So all we could show is the score, update the score, and then talk over the scoreboard. And Brent Stover, who was hosting at one point, you know, I think UMBC was up 17 with like four minutes to go. And he said, so, Gary, put this into perspective for us. What's happening here? And I said, we're watching the biggest upset in NCAA tournament history, and it's going to happen. And here's why. Virginia's down 17, but they can't score 17 points in three and a half minutes. Like UMBC doesn't have to score anymore. We reached the point where. The team that's ahead doesn't have to score anymore, and it can still win. It doesn't matter what happens from this point forward. 
uh, UMBC is about to knock off the number one overall seed in the NCAA tournament. It's remarkable because you know, Virginia was 31-2. and two. They beat Duke. They beat North Carolina. They beat Clemson. They beat Rhode Island. They only lost twice. Once, by, I think, seven points to West Virginia on the road. Once by you know a point or two or whatever it was to Virginia Tech in overtime. They had never been handled like this by anybody. And then for it to happen on this stage and to watch it unfold and then watch the emotions on both sides, whether it's uh, those UMBC kids who have just created a, a moment that nobody outside of them thought was even possible. And then watching the Virginia kids. I don't know how if you got to see much of the press conference, but they were genuinely crushed. You know, they knew um, that they were a part of history and not the good part of history. And there was one moment where I think it was Cal Guy. But somebody asked the question, you know, what has Tony Bennett, your coach, done to help you prepare for this moment? And and the player said, I love Coach Bennett, and he's prepared us in so many ways for so many things, but there's nothing you can do to prepare for this. You don't ever expect to be here. And it just really sunk in that um, they already knew what had just happened to them. And it's just, uh, I don't know, it was an interesting, uh, you know, it was just interesting to watch it all go down and then watch the postgame reaction. But more than anything else, it was it was history. And I'll be honest with you, as recently as this week, because you know how it is. You go on radio shows or I think it might have even act, actually happened on television. You always get as this the year or 16 is going to be the one. Every year we get as that 50 times. And my stock answer had become, no, it's not the year. And here's why. It's never going to be the year. 16s don't beat ones. You know, 16s are, you know, like, you know, 180th at Ken Palm. Suddenly they're going to go be a one seed, one of the four best teams in the country. Like that doesn't happen. We play regular seasons every year from November to early March. Teams like that don't beat teams like that. And then here we are, a team like that not only beat a team like that, but it beat their brains in and ran away from them in the second half. The style in which UMBC did this was very middle Tennessee over Michigan State. It was very Florida Gulf Coast over Georgetown. It was very Buffalo over Arizona. No doubt about it. And Sean Miller's got to be feeling pretty happy in the immediacy of this kind of result because, frankly, this result overshadows everything else from the entire weekend as it should given its historic precedent. If you'll allow me the floor for just a few minutes, I want to hit Virginia first, then I'll circle back to UMBC. Because to me, Virginia is obviously a big angle on this, but this is UMBC's moment. This is what, like, Virginia has to shoulder this forever, but UMBC gets to proudly carry this win. It is more about UMBC. We will always know the name. We will always know the acronym. We will always know it because they pulled it off. They actually did it. But how about this? First of all, if you're if you're curious, Virginia is now three and one all time against UMBC. Those other three uh, results that went the Cavaliers' favor clearly don't matter. Um, amazingly, Tony Bennett and his Virginia Cavaliers' absolute collapse in the Elite Eight only two years ago against Syracuse in Chicago becomes a distant second from most embarrassing losses of, of Bennett's career, and that one's really bad. Really, like 99 times out of 100, if they're in that game against that Syracuse team, they win it. It's the only one they lose. Here, UMBC, it, it looked like it it belonged. It looked like the one seed. Virginia was a 20.5 20 point favorite. UMBC wins by 20. It's the biggest margin of victory ever for a team seeded 14th or lower 
in the history of the NCAA tournament. This was dominance. It was shocking to see how easily the retrievers were able to get to the tin against a pack line defense that was that's famous for basically putting up a wall and forcing you into fits. That wasn't there. And this wasn't just DeAndre Hunter not being available. And obviously, he's their top pro prospect. He adds a certain element to them. And for a little while in that second half, I thought, man, if they had Hunter in this game, if they just if they had Hunter in this game, maybe they'd be having some more success. But what we saw was essentially a team drowning without water. Virginia lacked any sort of spark. It could not run offense. And then occasionally, oh, by the way, UMBC was just lobbing up threes and they were going down. Like the shots were just falling, the momentum. They had complete steam behind them, and it was incredible. For Bennett, he is the, I, I said this to Goodman when the game was ending. There is no coach more mentally equipped to deal with this than Bennett. And there is a cruel irony in that and maybe an appropriateness, but obviously, as expected, you know, with Tracy Wolfson outside the locker room after the game and then at the podium in his opening statements and taking questions, he handled it tremendously. There's no doubting. And, uh, you know, again, just uh, I appreciate you giving me a few minutes here, GP. I know we're going to get back to Bennett, but I do want to get to UMBC as well. But my, my lasting thought on Bennett is this. Um, this sticks to you forever. It's almost like a scarlet letter. Like even if you win a national title, which I, by the way, I know a lot of people are going to say Virginia is never going to fricking do this. Not with the way that Bennett coaches, it's never going to happen. And right now they've got a damn good case. But even if he does do that or wins two titles or three titles, he's always going to be the coach that lost to a 16 seed was the first one to do it and got his ass beat doing it. So that's just something that becomes part of Virginia and Tony Bennett's legacy, no matter what. But for UMBC, man, this is I am so happy for that school, and it is incredible they were even in the spot to begin with because they had lost more than 20 straight games against Vermont. Vermont was the best team in the America East this year. Vermont got to host the America East title game on its home floor. UMBC needed a buzzer-beating three-pointer to even get into the field. And then while everyone else was gabbing up Penn, having a shot against Kansas, I love this. I love that everyone was like, ooh, it's going to happen this year. Penn can do it. It's, it's an Ivy team. There hasn't been an Ivy team seated 16th since 1989. If there's one team that can do it, it's going to be Penn. And meanwhile, in from the sky swoops in these freaking miracle dogs, and they take down Virginia. Shouts to Ryan Odom. I don't even know who I can shout for famous alumni from, from UMBC. Athlete Turner. You got it. Look at the you're, – you're on top of it right now. You got a graphic on it tonight on television. Boom. Absolutely. So this is, this is why I love this damn tournament so much. And this is just it – is, it is something that gives every 16 seed hope going forward. UMBC did it. We can do it now too. That wasn't there until we got it on Friday. And the fact they did it the way they did it, I don't know if I'll ever get over that. I mean, this, this was just – you kept waiting, like waiting for Virginia to get three or four consecutive stops, go down, get a few buckets, cut the lead to six or four or eight. It just never happened, and it was bizarre and yet and thrilling to see just the way the game ended and the way the guys celebrated and the way that Odom, by the way, just took none of the credit, gave it all to his players. I thought that was awesome. And um, I'll toss it back to you before we spin forward with this, obviously. Now, we've got a UMBC-K-State uh, second-round game. 
But uh, I am in particular curious about not just more thoughts from UMBC from you, but but about Bennett and the fact that he lost this and Virginia in particular for that program to be the one that will have to carry this. I want to say one thing about Ryan Odom first, because you mentioned how well Tony Bennett handled this afterward. And he did. He was tremendous, as you would expect. I wouldn't have expected Tony to handle it any other way than he did. I thought Ryan Odom was terrific as well in this way. Uh, not so much giving credit to his players. I mean, I, that, that's what most coaches do. Uh, if you saw Dan D'Antoni earlier today, he was giving all the credit to his players. I, I thought Ryan struck a nice balance between being, I mean, super happy and super proud and super excited and and also showing an incredible amount of respect uh, for what just happened to Tony Bennett. Because in sports... Um, you know, you, you you can't have your great moment without it coming at somebody else's expense. Your great moment is always somebody else's nightmare. And Ryan Odom's greatest moment as a professional comes at the expense of, of Tony Bennett's ultimate nightmare. And Ryan seemed to, in real time, recognize that. And so... And I'm not sure every coach would have. I mean, there are some coaches who would have set up on that stage tonight and, you know, just would have just conducted themselves in a different way. And let me be clear. I'm not even saying they would have been wrong because, my God, you just made college basketball history. But Ryan seemed very under control. And he mentioned Tony multiple times. And seemed to understand better than most would that this is this is a night I never could have really imagined and I'm in it right now. And Tony Bennett's in it too. And that's a guy who had already, for all of his accomplishments and brilliance, you know, had been facing criticism. You know, I don't know that people actually thought what happened tonight would happen to Tony, but the knock on him is he – you know, he takes too many early exits from the NCAA tournament. Unbelievable in the regular season, but the style of play, the coaching style, doesn't work in March. Pat Forty actually filed a column about that shortly after the game. It's fraudulent. Virginia's way of doing things. It's nice in November, December, January, February, but in March it's not going to get you where, where you want to go. And I'm not 100% sure that that's true, but I'm 100% sure you've got a lot of stuff to to use to make your case now and i just thought it was very um you know knowing that that this was tony's nightmare ryan seemed to recognize that and i thought that was impressive on his part and i'm sure tony um appreciated as well let me ask you with tony bennett because this is part of his story now i mean tony honestly when you came into this season and this is why these past couple of days have been remarkable if you would have you know asked for people to list tell me the two best coaches who haven't been to a Final Four yet. I think two of the names that would have come off either one, two, or certainly in the top fives, Tony Bennett and Sean Miller. And they both had teams equipped to get there. And they both got blown out in the opening round of the NCAA tournament. Arizona by Buffalo, and obviously Virginia by UMBC. And so those reputations, they are only enhanced now. I think Tony has now lost as a better-seeded team in four of the past five NCAA tournaments. 
And to put this on top of everything, not only is he the guy that, that can't get to a Final Four, even when the seed suggests he ought to, um, he's a guy who couldn't even get to the round of 32 when he was the number one overall seed. Uh, he will be known now. I, I, you wrote the column earlier. I think it's three of the past five ACC titles he's won regular season. That is trumped by this. And that's a weird, weird deal when you are widely regarded as one of the best coaches in America, and yet you've got this label now attached to you that you're not going to be able to shake, um, obviously, for at least a little more than a year, and and maybe not ever. Um, I'm curious what you think. Is there something to it? Has Tony Bennett just been unlucky? Is just just the way a single elimination tournament somehow goes? Or can you get where Virginia's record resume every year says it's supposed to get? Can you get there, you know, playing this style? I believe that you can. And the reason I believe that you can is because you do not have as much long-term sustained success in what's at worst a top two league. Yes, at worst a top two league in college basketball. And, and win it three times in five years and achieve number one seeds and have so big of a sample size inside your conference, outside your conference against top competition. The wonderful but fickle nature of this tournament is that it is one and done. You lose, you're gone, do or die, and you are facing desperation. And when you are facing desperation and you play this style, you cannot afford to have an off night. So the results are showing us that what Tony Bennett has opted to do in the long view has been the absolute best way to get him to the point where within the sport, he is universally considered a top 10 coach or near universally. But it really might it really might be universally. OK, I understand if, if you want to write off Virginia and Bennett's style and say this is why they're never going to get a national championship that might ultimately wind up being true, but I leave the door ajar on this because I've seen how good this team looks. It was baffling to me to see the guys in those Virginia uniforms on Friday, GP. I saw that team in Brooklyn last week and came away thinking, this is like Villanova's good, but Virginia at full strength, that's, that's such a better team. I don't even think there's that much of a debate. Villanova can win the national championship. Duke can break through and win the national championship. Michigan State could do it. Xavier could do it. Hell, I've got Purdue and the, the only possible team remaining in my bracket, which is essentially kindling at this point. I thought Virginia was so well-equipped to do this, but it hit a hot UMBC team, and it did not have the players or the style to respond to it. And even though I think they can win a national title like this, you cannot deny that for as strong as they looked, and they had only two losses this season, there is a fatal flaw to this model that unfortunately leaves you vulnerable. And I'll only tag it with this. Virginia gets more crap about this because of the way that it plays and it is so distinct. There are plenty of other really good programs and really good coaches that haven't made Final Fours and haven't won national titles that play different kinds of styles. But because they're not so distinct, those teams and those coaches, they don't really get singled out like that. Sean Miller just gets singled out because, well, you're a really good coach and you haven't made it yet. But no one really talks about the way that Sean Miller coaches his guys on offense and defense and why that might be a flawed thing. It is because Virginia is so easy 
to look at how they play and pick it out. That's why he is where he is. And I don't see Bennett changing what he does at the college level because at this point, it's gotten him to where he is, and he'll wear this well. Like, he'll wear it, and and he'll have plenty of doubters, but ultimately I don't expect him to change who he is because I, I don't think he probably feels as though there's a need to do it. He knows his team got absolutely whooped, and it was a brutal precedent-setting result. But I'd be shocked if in two or three years we looked up and saw a dramatically different Virginia team under Bennett that's that's just that runs its schemes in ways that wildly vary from the team that we know and have seen over the past half decade. I agree with you. Uh, I, clearly, it's been a problem. And I do think it is a problem on some level. Because when you talk to basketball coaches, what they'll tell you, and I don't know even know that this is advanced analysis, but you know, with with the tempo at which Virginia plays, which is literally last in the country, three fifty one out of three fifty one, that it it closes a talent gap if you have it, it because it limits possessions. You know, the reason that the Warriors are going to win another World Championship isn't because somebody can't beat them in a game or two games. It's because in a seven-game series, like, the better team usually wins. And in a – you know, the, the more possessions there are in a game, the more likely it is a better team should win. Well, with Virginia, you're going to get a limited number of possessions. And in a single elimination tournament, if your opponent gets hot and you get behind – not only is there are there actually fewer possessions to play than there would in a normal game, I think those players know it. I think they know, like, we don't have time to come back doing what it is we normally do. Like, it, it felt that way when they got down, like, 12. It's like, how are they going to come back 12, nine minutes to go? And I don't think we're the only ones think that. I think they think that. I think they know it. Then they start pressing. You know how sometimes when you're down, like, seven with two minutes to go and a team like the team down seven really starts pressing, you know, taking bad shots. We see it all the time because they feel like we got to score now. We've got to get this back now. I think that's the same way Virginia starts to feel when it's down 12 with like nine minutes to go. There's plenty of time, um, but it doesn't feel that way because they play at such a slow tempo and there's so few possessions. And I think that catches up to you in an NCAA tournament. I think you're, you put yourself at more risk of something like this. Um, than you otherwise would be based on the seed beside your name. And yet, I don't know that you adjust too much because if you can win three straight games in the ACC tournament, you know, you can win, you know, four. That's what it takes. It takes four. It only takes four to get to a Final Four. You know, they can clearly win three in the ACC. I think you could argue winning three in the ACC is about as difficult as winning four in the NCAA, don't you think? Yes. Right. So, like, I think this is one of those things where, listen, I'm not going to come on here and rip anybody for writing a column saying Virginia's fraudulent because all the evidence is on your side. Like, if you were ever going to write that column, tonight's the night to do it. But I, I think this is one of those deals where the fact that Virginia hasn't made a Final Four playing this way, I, I think sometimes people conclude you can't win a Final Four playing this way. I don't believe that. I think Virginia hasn't made a Final Four playing this way but Virginia can make a Final Four. It just hasn't happened yet. And when will it happen? Will we see it happen? I don't know. What There are just things that blow my mind about this. 
Albany. I texted Will Brown, the Albany coach. <laughs> I said, "Out of the, you beat this team by 44 points." I texted guys in the league wanted to get a sense of this UMBC team, and Odom's a good coach. Lyles is awesome, good guys, but by no like a solid team. But there's no like. By the way, those dudes are going to be like any coach that has gone up against UMBC. Shouts to you because you're going to be hit up by media uh, over the pe- ne- next 24 to 36 hours, and and rightfully so. But like one coach said, they don't have much. They shoot a lot of threes. They're fast. They can be good. Can be a little streaky here and there. Lyles is awesome, but this is as stunning to us as as what we're seeing, as what you're seeing, and and without a doubt. But that is why this is so great. Because no one knew who the hell UMBC was. It was getting no love whatsoever, nor should it have been. I mean, it's a 16. It's the second tournament ever in school history. It had never won a game. And it manages to pull this kind of stuff off, coming out of the tiny America East, which always ranks as the bottom five or six conference in all of college basketball, beating a mighty school from the ACC, a proud program. I, this is just – this makes the tournament. 2018, no matter what – like, who knows? Maybe UMBC beats K-State on Sunday, and that would be amazing. But there is also something to be said about if this winds up being just a singular event and this goes the way that it normally goes with 14s and 15s where they get one and it's rare where you get two. Um, But 2018, no matter who makes the Elite Eight and Final Four, no matter who wins the national championship, they'll have some of that. But 2018 is UMBC. It is the 16 beating a one. It's those five words we've been waiting for forever and we – Expected it eventually to come true, hoped it would, but it wasn't a fact till now. A 16 beat a one. That is awesome. And who knows when we'll get it next. It took us, what, 85 to 2018, so 33 years. Will we wait another three decades till we see this again? I don't know. Maybe we'll wait two years. But in the here and the now... Damn, I love this sport. That's just great stuff. And I and we're talking at well after 2 a.m. about this kind of stuff. And, uh, man, I don't know what else we're going to get from this tournament. But this 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 is it. Like, you say, well, went on your radio show, GP, and we talked about this. It always gives you something. Always. But we've never had this. It, it will it will vault this tournament into next week and the, and the week after that. We'll have other stories. To talk. We'll move on. We'll talk about other things. We're always going to come back to this from 135-0 and 0 to 135-1. and 1. I think you're right, and 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 that sometimes happens with the NCAA tournament. I, I believe 2013 is a great example. That's Florida Gulf Coast. That's the Florida Gulf Coast year. Now it might have changed subsequently because that's also now the year Louisville had to vacate a national title. But in the you know six months after the 2013 NCAA tournament ended, um, the memory wasn't necessarily Louisville beating Michigan. It was Florida Gulf Coast and Dunk City. And Andy Enfield, and speaking candidly, Andy Enfield's wife. I mean, those were the memories from from that NCAA tournament, and I I agree with you. Uh, almost regardless of what happens here over these next couple of weeks, you know, we'll always remember that uh, 2018. That was the year that it finally happened. Something that I personally had reached the point where I didn't think it would happen. It's the year 16 finally beat a one, and um, it was cool to watch tonight. Let's move on. Uh, buying tickets can be complicated and confusing, but it doesn't have to be, uh, not when you use SeatGeek, which is the smartest and the easiest way to get tickets to every type of a live event, including the NCAA tournament. So if you're pumped up after what has been an amazing Thursday and Friday and you live near a site and you want to try to get tickets to that site, uh, make sure to go to that SeatGeek app. You can be staring at tickets, purchasing tickets, 
in like a couple of clicks. That's all it takes. And uh, you have to understand that if you uh, just use that SeatGeek app and the promo code COLLEGEBB, College BB, you're going to get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. So if you've never used it before, shame on you, but you can start using it now. It's going to be a fun weekend, and obviously the NCAA tournament continues next week as well. You're looking for tickets to anything, including the Final Four, a SeatGeek can get you hooked up. And what it does is search multiple ticket sites for you so that you don't have to do that. It's going to make sure you're getting the best value and the best seat. So it's saving you time, and it's also saving you money. So if you don't have that SeatGeek app yet, go get it. Download it. Keep it on your phone. And all it takes is a couple of uh, clicks. You'll be uh, shocked at how simple the whole process actually is. And remember, use the promo code COLLEGEBB to get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. That's COLLEGEBB at SeatGeek. Millions of tickets in one place. So I was on television night with Pete Gillen, former Virginia coach, former Xavier coach. And he said that he thought this was the greatest Thursday, Friday of the opening week of the NCAA tournament in history. What I always say when people bring things up like this is that, A, I'm not a historian, and B, I have a terrible memory. Um, But I will say, you know, we just watched a 16 beat the one for the first time. We watched Buffalo hammer Arizona, an Arizona team that had been an incredible story uh, for all sorts of different reasons this season. We watched Loyola Chicago beat Miami at the buzzer. We watched Marshall beat Wichita State. We watched Rob Gray get 39 on San Diego State. We watched the freshman seasons and presumably college careers of Trey Young, Mo Bamba, DeAndre Ayton all come to a, uh, an end. Is it possible we just watched the, the most interesting slash best Thursday, Friday in the opening weekend of the NCAA tournament in history? Is that, is that hyperbole or, uh, or is it possibly true? I, I, don't, I don't know if it's true. I do know this. Thursday and Friday were awesome. They were awesome, and I think there's a solid chance they might they might be the most memorable, maybe. But this is recency bias because what we don't have is the most buzzer beaters. This weekend didn't provide that. It didn't provide the most seed upsets. It didn't provide you know any any fifteen. Now we get the sixteen, which is huge. Um, but all uh, all the twos moved on, um, and we so got you got a sixteen and two thirteens, right? Two thirteens. It's only the fourth time that's happened, and we got a lot of good stuff. Now, as we record this, um, maybe this winds up being the best first weekend ever. And to get there, I think you got to have Buffalo move on. You got to have UMBC move on. And speaking of moving on, I just want to note one thing real quick because I saw this with UMBC and a lot of teams. It is awesome that uh, David Warlock, who works with the NCAA. Um, there had been a movement uh, in recent years. In fact, I think our, Jody, our buddy Jeff Eisenberg and Fran Fraschilla had kind of the, the tournament, which happens every August, where these dudes that used to play college ball and pro ball, they play for like $3 million, right? And on the floor, after they get a win, they, they stick their team name onto a big bracket and kind of have a little celebration. That's now happening in locker rooms after every game. And I love the fact that it got instituted this year with UMBC. It's just a really cool thing. And something that uh, just adds to the fun of this tournament. Just an, another small wrinkle that makes this thing so great. And so getting uh, Buffalo and perhaps potentially UMBC 
Marshall, can it beat West Virginia? That's just in general. That's amazing that's happening, by the way, uh, given the yeah, history. A couple of those, uh, by the way, like in-state games, uh, Marshall, West Virginia. And what's the other one? Butler, Purdue? Uh, Butler, Purdue, yes. Yeah, and that's uh, in the same uh, corner of the bracket, if you will. Um, so we have that overall. So I think this weekend actually has some nice potential. We'll see where other upsets might or may or may not occur. I think we might need like, – listen, we had, we've had we had a great couple of days here. And Loyola, can they break through? That would be that would be awesome. Will we get one or two more buzzer beaters, maybe an overtime game or two? Um, but I don't want I don't want to say, and I'd be curious to hear listener feedback on this as well, because the, over the past like ten twelve years, like I I can't pinpoint the specific year right now, but I know we've had like ridiculous Thursday and Fridays just in terms of the number of overtime games or buzzer beaters or total upsets of elevens, twelves, thirteens, and fourteens in a given year. Um, so I, I I hesitate with that, but obviously it's so historic, and I think we always will remember it. Like this is this is just one like twenty thirteen where we're going to remember almost like the way that Richmond over Syracuse and South Carolina uh, losing as two seeds in the 90s. Those were those were like benchmark-type years because you remembered the how historic those losses were. I do think 2018 will apply in that regard. Another thing that's funny about the way this has worked out, if you go to the South Regional, it was obviously unveiled Sunday night. And John Calipari, the Kentucky coach, went on television, as he always does, so take it for what it is. But he went on television and explained how there must be a conspiracy against the Wildcats, um, which is obviously silly because, just trust me, as somebody who worked for a television network that broadcast games, um, I'm confident my boss has won Kentucky around forever. There would never be a uh, there should never be a conspiracy against having Kentucky in the tournament for as long as Kentucky can be there. It's why they get those uh, premier windows on CBS basically every time they play. Kentucky's good for business. But either way, I sort of understood where he was coming from because in the round of 32, he thought he's going to be playing the Pac-12 regular season champs and Pac-12 tournament champs. And then if he was lucky enough to get past that one, well, then he was going to have to face the number one overall seed, Virginia Cavaliers. And I believe we talked about this on Sunday, and I've talked about it before. Uh, the, when these brackets come out, we all look at them, and we all do the same thing, and we start projecting. And from our projections, we discuss who's got the toughest path and who's got the easiest path and who got screwed and who didn't. And then the you know the ball is tipped, as the song goes, and 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 the paths take on different versions. Uh, um, quickly my point being this for Kentucky to get to the elite eight all it has to do now is outlast Kansas State UMBC and Buffalo if it's able to do that (laughs) John Calipari's Wildcats will be in the elite eight of this NCAA tournament playing uh, either Cincinnati Nevada Tennessee or Loyola Chicago turns out uh, Kentucky's at least little section of the bracket is has broken in a way that nobody anticipated. I agree, and, and you can't predict it. You right. never will. We never will. The bracket will beat you every single time, as it should, as it should always be. That's part of the fun of it, and it would be amazing if UMBC won again. And I'm not going to get my hopes up for that, but for the purposes of content and discussion and just this tournament, it'd be incredible if they did, if they moved on. Uh, and in Kentucky, if you had a Kentucky-UMBC matchup, oh, I mean, come on. <laughs> First of all, that school would be overtaken 
by an army of press, which is just part of the fun of it. Like, And you know that they're going to embrace all that, as they should. And whomever is running the UMBC Athletics official Twitter account, Killing it. One deserves a raise. Two, do not step to that account because you are going to get done. <laughs> like, you will, uh, shouts to our bud Seth Davis who got caught. Uh, shouts to God, John Heyman. John Heyman caught those hands. I has mean, he ever has has Seth ever done that before? No. So, and when he and when he did it, I was like, "What's he doing?" Like the game's so, like three minutes old. So Seth's thing is, um, you know, he'll tweet Sharpie when he declares a game over. And uh, it's a little bit like Rothstein's got this as March, Seth's got Sharpie. Um, it, it works for them. And so, you know, usually he plays it pretty safe. And yet when the – like it was a minute into Virginia UMBC, he tweeted Sharpie. Like though, you would think like the one time you – like, hey, there's 135 examples of this in history. You'd have been right 135 of the previous times. And like I think – as far as I know, the first time he's ever done that, Sharpie in the first minute – it ends up being uh, it ends up getting him in a bad spot. You know, like we can all laugh at it. It's, it's not to be taken seriously, but it was um, it was funny and something a lot of people had fun with. Yeah, no doubt that account though, like it's going Doberman on people. John Heyman got just done in, and plenty of others did it as well. I I recommend it if you have not checked out the official UMBC Athletics Twitter account. Just take a scroll through. Who knows what kind of carnage it's going to have in its wake come Saturday morning. Um, but yeah. Uh, Overall, you mentioned just like the Kentucky part of the bracket. Um, weirdly, all the five seeds won this year. Uh, you had two 13s, obviously, um, but no 14s, no 15s, but we got a 16. And so it's it's been an it's been an intriguing um, first weekend, first round, I guess. The weekend still we got we got more games here. There's still so much more to go, and yet at the same time, um, perhaps this will be better served uh, on our Sunday podcast. But like Michael Porter, like. Totally forgettable that his game was a did not register because it was caught in the UMBC stuff. No memory of him like him at Missouri playing in the tournament just doesn't exist. Basically, he's gone. Trey Young, obviously, one and gone. Mohamed Bamba, one and gone. DeAndre Ayton, one and gone. All these uh, big time star freshmen, one and gone, one and done, not just with their college careers, but with themselves in the NCAA tournament. And if you allow me, as we talk about Ayton, just real quick to talk about Arizona, because had everything else kind of gone to plan and Virginia had won, I suspect we would have talked heavy on Arizona. In, yeah. ad- in addition to maybe a few interesting matchups we saw him with the way that Marshall was able to beat Greg Marshall and Wichita State and stuff like that. But um, I'm all – by the way, I'm all on board with this underdog just kicking the crap out of these favorites because Buffalo looked tremendous, like fan-freaking-tastic the way it was able to do what it was able to do. And Nate Oates, its coach at halftime, said, yeah, we're the better team. Like, we know we're the better team. He totally backed it up. And for Buffalo to do what it did for Arizona, listen, this could be something of a uh, of a nuclear winter in terms of that basketball program because they bring back almost no one. Really, Sean Miller's future is not, is not set in stone. We don't know what's going to happen with him in that program. And perhaps this discussion at length is best served after the season, but in the immediacy of Arizona, a super, super trendy Final Four pick, and the two teams that everyone was taken out of that region are now gone in one re- in in one round. Um, worth noting just how big of an egg Arizona laid, and uh, it, I, I think that was the most stunning performance from like a four. Like you don't really get a four seed that becomes such a trendy Final Four pick 
And in the rare instance where you might have a three or four where that's the case, I don't think I had ever really seen a team be that bad in the first round. Your thoughts? That would absolutely be the biggest story of the first Thursday, Friday of the tournament, if not for UMBC beating Virginia. And I think you're exactly right. You know, Sean Miller's future is is very much up in the air. And here, this to me is the interesting, the, the interesting thing in Tucson is initially people just ask the question, you know, what did Sean Miller know? What did he not know? What did he do? What did he not do? And you know, if Arizona finds out he did this or knew this, will Arizona fire him? And all of that's still on the table, by the way. He has a longtime assistant charged with multiple felonies facing federal prison. At some point, he's going to talk. I've said this before. And it is possible that he has nothing to say whatsoever about Sean Miller. But if you've worked at the high major level for as long as Sean has, and Book Richardson's been right with you, shoulder to shoulder, and you guys have been recruiting at the highest level of the sport consistently, I, I'd be nervous. Again, maybe Sean has done or said, done nothing and knew about nothing. But if the FBI was talking to one of my best friends, even though I can't possibly commit NCAA, I haven't committed any NCAA violations for it, I'd just be nervous. Like, I don't think that's a good spot for anybody. So the initial stuff's still on the table. Like, you know, we know Sean's on a wiretap. We know Sean's got a close friend who's facing federal prison. Who knows where that leads to? Maybe nothing, but I think it's perfectly reasonable to uh, assume that it could lead somewhere, and it would be problematic for Sean and problematic for Arizona. The other issue that Arizona now has is they can't recruit with this cloud hanging above them, and not only above the program, but but above Sean specifically because even though i think we all acknowledge that that espn report uh was not a hundred percent perfect and i do believe sean miller when he says i wasn't on a wiretap talking about a pay-for-play scheme involving deandre Aiden with christian dawkins i do think that's true i do also think it's true that he was on a wiretap discussing something and it might not be good for him and because that is hanging out there and negative recruiting is a very real thing in college basketball, you know, he already lost his 2018 class decommitments and it's going to be hard to recruit going forward. And in a different year, that might not be a big deal, but like you said, they're losing basically every important piece or lots of important pieces. They're going to be bad next year. And if you can't recruit and like restock with a top five class, which is what they've normally been able to do, then they're going to be bad again. And so I guess my question is this, if you're Arizona, obviously, if you think this is going to blow up on you at some point, like the Sean Miller aspect of this, either book's going to talk on him or uh, a document's going to be uh, published that, that, that spells the end or a wiretap is going to be made public that is too much to overcome, then you probably move on. I think everybody's understood that for a while. But what if you just decide he can't do the job anymore? Like, because, whether he's guilty or innocent, whether he's been wronged or he's getting what he deserves, he can't do the job right now. He has no roster and, and, and no ability to recruit under these circumstances. Then do you just move him because like, he can't do the job? 
Like Arizona basketball is about to be bad. I I I, I think that's the most fascinating uh, story in college basketball right now, outside of the actual basketball games. Like what happens at Arizona? Because even if Sean has done nothing wrong, and even if nobody's ever going to be able to say definitively Sean did something wrong, he can't do the job under these circumstances. And that puts Arizona in a tough, tough spot. I have no idea what's going to happen with that. If you made me pick one way or the other right now, I guess I would lean he's not there to start next season. And and that's not a strong lean for me. Um, You make very valid points. And obviously we've discussed this before on previous podcasts and in recent weeks as well. And it's just the way that this ended. And it was uh, just weird, man. Like Arizona fans also, they are – way too accustomed to this from their team having talented Arizona teams not even just get out of the first weekend not get out of the first round this is stuff that if you're an Arizona fan and you're in your mid-30s or older you are way too not comfortable but just this is part of the routine like you hope that you can get years where you get to the elite eight and final four but this is also part of it and now with Sean um, and everything else that's around the program. Like, I I guess it wouldn't surprise me after this and after the way that it just ended and you could write a damn book about everything that him and that school and that team and program have gone through over the past six months if he was just like, I got to bag this. Like, maybe I've got a, a hookup at the NBA level. I can go just sit on an NBA bench for two years, try and fix whatever I need to fix on a personal and legal level. Um, if I leave the school the way I'm leaving it, you know, so be it. But I, this is just not going to be tenable. Or maybe the administration thinks that as well. Um, but this appears to be, and maybe it gets lower, but right now um, the nadir of this, of this program, um, at least in terms of you know, modern Arizona athletics uh, with its men's basketball program. So I don't know what we'll get, but I just know that Buffalo was not thought to be a team that was going to beat Arizona. And again, the best upsets are the ones you don't see coming. And nobody, I mean, yeah, obviously some people, like, I don't know, 8% of the brackets at CBSSports.com had Buffalo winning. But you get what I'm saying. They weren't talked about as a team that could pull this off. Almost certainly no one you know that follows college basketball even halfway you know, through the season or casually was picking Buffalo to win. And yet Nate Oates... And the Bulls got it done, and now Arizona and its program find itself in tatters, trying to move forward. We wait to see what comes next. I wouldn't expect any movement until after the season is over, aside from, obviously, the declarations from Alonzo Trier and DeAndre Ayton and what's sure to become soon of Raleigh Alkins declaring for the draft their college careers are over. What's interesting is that, I don't know if it was a month ago, whenever it was, but before the ESPN story, the wiretap story came out, there was some thought among some basketball people, not all, and I'm not reporting this is true. I'm just talking on a podcast. There was some thought that Sean would just jump to pit. Like he would, he knew he was going to lose Aiton, Hawkins, Trier, and it might be just, you know, hey, let's just, there's so much now connected to this Arizona situation, whether it's real or not real, but like, like, why not just, get back east, go to my alma mater, and, and and start fresh. Start fresh. And there were some people in basketball that thought he was, he was prepared to do that. And then the wiretap story comes out, and now those same people who thought he was going to do that still think he probably would if he had the opportunity, but that he won't get the opportunity. 
that Pitt can't hire him under these circumstances. Let me ask you this. If you were Pitt, and by the way, Pitt's in a – if there's a one program that might be in a worse spot than Arizona, it might be Pitt. Mm-hmm. The report from Friday that eight players have asked for a release, just a reminder that – you know, after an 0-18 ACC record, just a reminder that their decision to – to lower Jamie Dixon's buyout and encourage him to leave for TCU. And then their uh, decision to compound that mistake by hiring Kevin Stallings. I mean, it really goes down as, as one of the worst like sequences um, uh, of, of from going from one coach to another in, in recent college basketball history. Like if you're Pitt, would you just hire Sean Miller and say, you know what? We believe in him. And then if you have to, if you have to not believe in him someday, not believe in him. I'm, I'm, I'm curious what you would do if you were running Pitt and and somebody told you, hey, Sean's in a bad spot in Arizona. You want to bring him home? He'll come home. Would you do it? I don't know. I, I actually might. Like, what do you got to lose? I know, I know. But if you think that you've got a legit shot at landing Dan Hurley at this point in time, and who the hell knows what's going to happen with the Rhode Island Rams over the next sixteen hours here? Do you kind of wait and weigh that kind of stuff as well? Uh, I don't know. We'll see. Pitt obviously is, uh, <laughs> or like if you if you want to get one of those guys, or does Nate Oates, who's kind of local to the region, and if he gets to the Sweet Sixteen, what do you do there? Pitt is, uh, yeah, that that whole situation is is not good right now, but it's also interesting and, and certainly ripe with opportunity. But yeah, we'll see where it goes with Miller. Uh, he he certainly, I think. His name will come up certainly as a possibility if he winds up leaving Arizona. Whose career outside of the assistant coaches who got fired has been changed over the past year than more than Sean Miller's? No. Uh, Kevin Ollie's maybe. <laughs> but. Yeah, because he's he's legitimately out of the sport right now, and he won a national title in 2014. Um, I, I mean, Sean went from one of the like brightest, you know, like got it operating at the highest level of the sport guys to now. He's in a bad spot and 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 possibly in in jeopardy of losing his job. I mean that's a you know that's a that's a hell of a turn of events. And um, yeah, I'm not sure what's going to happen there. I get, I've got asked that a few times over the past few days, and I don't think there's an obvious answer. Um, but I, I, obviously, losing to Buffalo in the in the round of 64 just uh, compounds everything. And I don't know if it was a a weird way for their season to end or a perfect way for the season to end. I, I guess it. Uh, um, it depends on your perspective, but it was um, – I don't know. It, it, it's, been a, it's been an unbelievable Thursday and Friday. I mean obviously we, we've talked now for nearly an hour, and we haven't even touched on all of the interesting things. We could have done 15 minutes on Marshall. We could have done uh, you know, another uh, 10 minutes on Nevada. I don't even think we mentioned Nevada. Um, you know, beating Texas in overtime. Eric Musselman, you know, getting, uh, you know, a, a win in the NCAA tournament after being down, I think, 14 points at one point in that game. It's uh, it's been a, a great Thursday, Friday. I, I agree with you. I, I don't want to get caught in the moment and say this is the best ever because honestly, I have no idea. Um, but I know it was fun, and it 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 underlines something that I think you and I agree on, and and something we've talked about before. You get bad Super Bowls, you get bad World Series, you can get a boring. NBA finals, the NCAA tournament delivers every year. You know, this is not the best sport in our country, but it is one of the best closing events in our country because it just gives you storylines. I mean, the Marshall storyline is awesome. And 
the Buffalo storyline is what? And UMBC just comes in and late on a Friday night uh, trumps every bit of it. Um, I hope Saturday and Sunday is just as much fun as Thursday and Friday was. Absolutely, and uh, I'll be back home Sunday night. So um, if your schedule allows, I'm good to talk then. If not, we can go Monday morning. It's really up to you. But between now and then, we'll see what we get and do our best to uh, to recap whatever else this awesome first weekend will give us um, and, and maybe set the table just a little bit for, for what's going to come the week after that. But. GP, it is it is very it is very late right now, but it's been great talking hoops with you. What an awesome Friday! It was an awesome Friday, and let's plan on Sunday night, by the way, because I'm in studio Sunday night. I don't know how late, but I don't think it's too late, and I'm flying on Monday morning. So if we don't do it Sunday night, it's going to be late Monday afternoon, and that seems old. So let's plan on Sunday night. We will uh, reconvene. Let me remind you real quick: if you're not following everything on. CBS Sports HQ, you should. Uh, the NCAA tournament is obviously ongoing, and you can follow it all live, CBS Sports HQ. I'm doing hits every single day. Norlander's doing hits every single day. It's a brand-new, free, 24-7 streaming sports information channel with scores, news, and highlights for the NCAA tournament and all of your favorite sports. It's always on, and you can stream it live anytime on the CBS Sports app for Apple TV, for Roku, for your phone, and other connected devices, or uh, you can just watch it online at cbssportshq.com. That's cbssportshq.com. Shouts to Devin Downey. Shouts to Chester, South Carolina. Shouts to Terry MF and Teagle, the legend. And please go subscribe to the Iron College Basketball Podcast via Apple Podcasts. Rate it favorably. Uh, five stars with nice comments. You guys have been great about that. Uh, we really do appreciate it, and it really is helpful. Uh, so if you get a chance, it just takes a couple minutes, not even. Uh, please go subscribe. Please rate it favorably. And if you want to write in something nice, that'll be awesome, too. Uh, like I said, we're going to talk to you again on Sunday night. Hope you enjoy in this NCAA tournament like we are. Uh, we'll talk to you on Sunday. Until then, take care.